It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hi, and yes, this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today uh, we're going to rerun an interview that I was reminded of last week when I featured the cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker on this show. He was making the case that human violence has been trending downward, that we human beings have actually been getting nicer to each other for, oh, the last couple thousand years. And one of the reasons, he says, is civilization, which has, in fact, civilized us. It has made us more compassionate, and sensitive to others, and not just our immediate intimates. As the philosopher Peter Singer has noted, over the course of uh, history, the circle of empathy has expanded. So we direct our empathy at larger uh, and larger circles of humanity and and even non-humanity when it comes to compassion for animals. Now, hearing Steven Pinker say that, I was reminded that I talked to the philosopher he just mentioned, Peter Singer, back in 2006. Peter Singer is uh, certainly one of the best-known philosophers in the world, and that's thanks uh, in part to his focus on practical ethics and how it applies to all sorts of modern-day issues, like the use of military force and abortion and factory farming. And he's also very well-known as the uh, intellectual daddy of the human rights movement, though rights is not exactly the word he likes to use. We talked about that, and we talked about much else, including moral theory, some hairy ethical dilemmas, and just how hard it is to lead the ethical life. And of course, all those questions are perfectly relevant today, so this seemed like a good time to replay that interview. Peter Singer, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. When did you first decide to become an ethicist, and why? Really, I think the most significant decision for me was to work in applied ethics and try and make ethics relevant to my everyday life, which at the time I did this in uh, uh, you know, 1969 or 70 around then, was unusual because the assumption was that ethics was a theoretical study and nobody was doing applied ethics really. Um, but it was the end of the 60s and there were a lot of movements around to be more radical, to live more truly to our ideals. And I guess it was in a sense a natural consequence of that, that we should follow it through in our in our ethics. And it was when I encountered issues like the treatment of animals and also the question of global poverty. And those two issues, I guess, made me think, well, there's some really practical questions about how we live our lives that need to be brought into philosophy. And it it was only then that I became an ethicist in the sense of someone who both does studies ethics and tries to live it out as best I can. Hmm. When it comes to ethical philosophy, you are a utilitarian. That's correct. Yes. And how do you define your, your version of utilitarianism? Well, the, the classical version of utilitarianism uh, was one that said we ought to maximize pleasure. We ought to maximize the, the surplus of pleasure over pain. Uh, my version is slightly different. It's sometimes called preference utilitarianism. What it says we ought to maximize is the satisfaction of preferences of uh, people or other sentient beings that have preferences and minimize the thwarting or frustration of those preferences. So, yes, preference utilitarianism is the term that's usually used for that. And this is completely different from uh, a moral system that's founded on some explicit and absolute rules, do's and don'ts. 
That's right. Um, a utilitarian might accept certain rules as general guides, as rules of thumb, you might say. But if it's perfectly clear that following the rule in some cases will, all things considered, have worse consequences, then the utilitarian will say, no, sometimes we have to break the rule. So utilitarianism, at least in the version that uh, you espouse, requires a person in any given situation to sort of run a calculation about the ultimate outcome and its impact on what you call preferences. Yes, that's true. Although, of course, in everyday life, we don't have the time to run a calculation on everything that we do. That would be, you know, that would be too incredibly complex. So that's why we have these rules of thumb, which can tell us that, you know, in general, for example, if people ask you a question, you tell the truth because telling the truth generally has best consequences. In general, you try and keep your promises. In general, you don't harm people and injure them, attack them, and so on. But, um, yeah, if, if you're ever sort of led to believe, way maybe the rule isn't the best thing to stick with here, then you do have to uh, try and calculate what the consequences will be. And those consequences, uh, where do you draw the line? How far into the future, how far across the planet or the universe do you have to follow the... Uh, the ultimate implications of every moral act, if you can. In theory, uh, you don't draw the line anywhere. There are, uh, there are no lines. Um, so wherever your action affects beings who have preferences, um, they can't. And if your action will affect beings who have preferences on Mars, should there be such beings, uh, they would can't. And of course, certainly if it affects non-human animals who have preferences, they can't as well. And as far as the future is concerned, as far as you can reasonably predict those consequences would count. But since, you know, if you go far enough into the future, there's a question of uncertainty. How do you know what the consequences will be? Um, you discount uh, the future for uncertainty to that extent. But wherever you can be confident of what the consequences will be, they should count. Um, some would say that uncertainty applies even to the most proximal kinds of uh, interactions. Uh, we can't even be sure how an action will affect someone who has spoken to us about their preferences. We can't be sure that, you know, I mean, I can introduce any number of ambiguities into that situation, much less something that is two, three, four, five, a hundred degrees removed from me. How is this practical? I think, in fact, in our everyday lives, we do calculate consequences. Maybe we don't calculate them for everyone in the way that I suggested, but we calculate them from ourselves and our friends or our family. I mean, suppose you're a family and you're deciding where to go on your summer vacation. And, uh, you know, you and your daughter love to go to the beach, but your wife and your son like to go to the mountains. And you try and decide, you know, well, whose preference is going to be satisfied better? And, and can we maybe all enjoy some something that's in the middle? So I think we actually, you know, we do calculate consequences all the time. And so utilitarianism is, is as practical as that, except that agreed where you're, where you're calculating them for people who you don't know well, it gets harder. But, uh, but governments do that all the time too. You know, they, they try and work out whether people will be made better off if you spend more money in healthcare or if you spend it in education. Uh, those are similar sorts of issues. True. And yet, um, as we look at issues like that, the arguments are, um, are infinite. Um, people will still argue whether, you know, an expenditure on, uh, on schools is, is a good one, for instance, when it comes to education. Uh, how can we as individuals grapple with issues that even even experts disagree about and and they inevitably do disagree about almost all of these things mm. well some of them are difficult and uh you know as individuals we have to form our own opinions we should be as well informed as we can and 
and reach our own judgment. And we're certainly not infallible. We can make mistakes. But we have to act on the balance of probabilities as we see them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I suppose one complaint about utilitarianism, and one that you've had to uh, debate many times, is that in promoting some cumulative good, some ultimate good, some bottom line, it seems to authorize or have an anything-goes attitude toward the acts that lead to that good. I mean, uh, there are a million scenarios in which one can imagine doing something horrible uh, ultimately causes some, some good that's uh, maybe larger than the cost. Are there any breaks on, on human behavior with this utilitarian system? Are there any real taboos? Again, at least at the theoretical level, no, there aren't. Um, but in practice, there often are because the things that, you know, you say we are led to do things that are really horrible, the things that are really horrible generally we think of as really horrible because they don't have best consequences overall. Um, they can create uh, bad precedents, for example, uh, so there can be those, those effects. They can brutalize society in various ways, even if it might seem superficially that they have best consequences. So do we... Should we carry around with us some sense that there are a number of things that are beyond the pale, even if logic seems to argue that, um, you know, the, the, the greater good would be served by these actions? I think we should. I think we should have those barriers, uh, those inhibitions. I mean, let me give you an example which is very relevant to things we've been discussing in this country in the last couple of years. Um, take torture. Right? So for a utilitarian in theory, you can certainly justify torture. You, you, know, you imagine the example where the terrorist has planted the nuclear bomb in a Manhattan basement, and the only way you can find out where it is and prevent millions of people dying and being maimed is by torturing him. Uh, that sounds like it's justifiable. In fact, you know, in, in that theor theoretical case, it is. But I think that in principle, we ought to say we do not torture, because once you allow it, you find that that is going to get abused. And it's interesting that we've seen, even in a country that is not officially utilitarian in its philosophy, on the contrary, has a strong tradition of individual human rights, we've seen that torture has been inflicted on people quite unjustifiably, uh, where you know they may well even have been innocent or had not had anything significant to reveal. So you need to have that strong prohibition because the, the, the hypothetical case is probably never going to happen, um, whereas the cases where once you allow exceptions, the principle gets abused actually happens quite frequently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a kind of uh, important modification of sort of uh, a pure utilitarian approach. It's utilitarianism with some checks and balances built into it, acts that, um, that maybe, given all the data in front of you, seem justifiable in the utilitarian system, should still be prohibited because if generalized, uh, they will be applied irresponsibly. That's right. Uh, and as you said, they should still be prohibited. So we are talking about a system of rules here. We have to have some rules. And, you know, this is why people ask sometimes there's a distinction between what's called act utilitarianism, where you calculate the consequences of every act, and rule utilitarianism, where you ask what's the best rule to have, what rule will have the best consequences. But I think the distinction is not actually a hard and fast one because uh, – the setting up the rule is itself something that will be justified in in the terms of it's the best act to do in the circumstances. While while acknowledging that some rules should be there, you do not believe in some principles that some folks hold sacred, the sanctity of human life, for instance. You disagree with that? I do disagree with that. Now, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, 
But ultimately, I suppose, it's because I don't think that the mere fact that you're a human being, that is a member of the species Homo sapien, gives you a right to life or a claim to right life in itself. It's just membership of a biological species. And, and just as we've rejected the idea that membership of a particular race gives you any special rights, so I think we should reject the idea that membership of a particular species gives you special rights. What is true is that most human beings have certain capacities like a high level of cognitive awareness, rationality, self-awareness, maybe sense of justice and so on. And maybe that gives them certain special claims. But not every member of the species, Homo sapien, has those capacities. For example, um, a baby born with a severely damaged brain uh, doesn't have them and will never have them. Um, And maybe some members of other species have them to an adequate degree, chimpanzees perhaps, you know, self-aware and so on. So that's why I think the, the seriousness of taking a being's life has to depend on the characteristics of the individual being, not the membership of the species. And that's why I think sometimes we're justified in taking the life of even an innocent member of the species, Homo sapien. Uh, for example, if, if we have a baby born with uh, very severe uh, brain damage and we know that that life uh, cannot be one that is a good one for the, for the child and is going to be uh, an immense burden on the family, and if the family decide that they think it's better that that uh, infant should not live, um, I think they should be able to make that decision. Um, again, in this case you just cited, though, which uh, you know is the, is the taking of, of the life of um, someone who is permanently and irreparably mentally impaired to the point of lacking consciousness, I'm reminded of what you just said a little earlier about, about rules which are in place and prohibitions in place because they seem to prevent abuses that otherwise would happen. And some people would argue that having this kind of emotional reverence for life, particularly the life of, of the helpless, of children, uh, is in itself a good thing, even when, in particular cases, we could imagine that the taking of a life is allowable. Yes, okay. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but I think the difference between this case and the, the torture case is that the, the case where you know, it's clearly beneficial to torture is, is extremely rare, I, I said, perhaps a hypothetical case that never occurs, whereas the kind of case that we're talking about here is a case that does occur quite regularly. And I think, you know, while it's, as I say, it can be useful to have certain rules, um, I think there is a really unnecessary suffering that we allow when we don't allow uh, that kind of euthanasia in, in those circumstances. And also, you know, we could talk also about uh, euthanasia at the end of life. Um, uh, that's another issue. But uh, so I think we can have rules that are more sophisticated here that that protect life uh, in most cases protect life where people want to go on living specifically but um, allow exceptions in in other cases and i think we can actually you know in a way it's a kind of a social experiment but we can see in countries like the netherlands that have been practicing uh, voluntary euthanasia anyway for decades now that um, uh, in general life is is well protected there you know your life on the street is as safe there maybe safer than it is in the united states so it doesn't seem to have that corrupting effect mm-hmm. 
you think people who put the act of euthanasia on a slippery slope that leads way down at the bottom to uh, Nazi mass extermination in the name of social hygiene and other, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of greater good arguments that the Nazis had. I mean, that's a question where you have to look at historical evidence and and social evidence. And I just don't think the evidence is there that there is such a slippery slope. Um, uh, As I say, we have a contemporary example with the Netherlands and and their neighbor, Belgium, has recently followed their laws and also enacted a voluntary euthanasia law. I'd like to know your position on a couple of other cases in the the taking of life. Um, The killing of innocents in warfare, what's called by uh, at least the U.S. military collateral damage. Right. I think it's a really interesting example because it seems to me uh, that there's a a kind of a contradiction between uh, someone like President Bush saying he's pro-life and he wants to foster a culture of life and authorizing bombing that he knows is going to kill Iraqi civilians. And, uh, you know, that has happened on on many, many occasions. A few years ago, I published a book called The President of Good and Evil, in which I looked at that and gave some examples of it. And uh, often this is not for really urgently necessary military targets. Uh, In one case, uh, they bombed the city of Basra because they had information that the general, uh, known as Chemical Ali, was there, who who was a a very nasty character who authorized, apparently, the use of uh, poison gas against the Kurds. Um, But uh, he wasn't, like, actively in the field in charge of of troops or anything. He was simply hiding in a civilian neighborhood, they thought. So they bombed this neighborhood. Uh, They hit uh, a house belonging to uh, a family where they killed, I think, 10 of 14 members of the family, ranging in age from infant to a grandmother. Um, and uh, they didn't kill Chemical Ali at all. He you know, was captured a few months later alive and well. Um, so you know, how could you justify that if you really believe in, in the importance of protecting innocent human life? I just don't see how you can. But in principle, one can certainly imagine situations that must occur in warfare where let's first of all premise our discussion on the idea that the, the war is just where, in fact, uh, the enemy is active, threatening lives, and is surrounded by civilians. What, mm. do you, what do you think of that case? There, I think there can be a, a justification. Again, because I look at it in a consequentialist view and don't claim to protect the sanctity of every life, if indeed uh, it is a just war, if the enemy is a, a major threat you know, to kill many more people than the number of civilians who will be killed, if there's a urgent military necessity to attack the enemy where he is amongst those civilians, and you do what you can to minimize the loss of civilian lives, then it, it can be justified, I think. But as I say, not so much in terms of the doctrine of the sanctity of life as in terms of just the proportion of the consequences. Another case where this comes up is um, in looking at the death penalty. Now, I know that, of course, there is no no clear consensus on, on the effectiveness of the death penalty as a deterrent. Many people would say it's not at all. But if it were a proven deterrent, would a policy that inevitably results in the execution of innocent people in the course of executing the guilty, and uh, let's say it results in the execution of far fewer innocent people than it does guilty people who otherwise would threaten the the safety of the populace, would you say that's okay? Well, um, obviously you would want to get your legal system as as good as it could possibly be to make sure that uh, very, very few innocents were put to death. 
Um, and you would want to make sure that the evidence that there is this major deterrent effect that clearly outweighs the number of innocents, uh, that that evidence is, is overwhelmingly strong. And, and I totally agree with you, incidentally, that it isn't. I don't think, in fact, I think the evidence goes entirely the other way. The death penalty is not a deterrent. Um, but uh, if it were, then I would have to accept that, yes, there, were, there was a case for using it, even if you knew that occasionally an innocent person would be killed because the argument would be simply that more innocent people would be being killed if you didn't do it. And I guess what's uh, significant about utilitarianism here and what doesn't quite fit with ordinary people's intuitions is that I think the utilitarian has to take responsibility for all the foreseeable consequences of your actions, you see. So some people would say in this case, well, if the state executes uh, people and knows that some of them are innocent, then the state is responsible for the deaths of those innocents. But if these murderers who are not deterred by the death penalty, assume you don't have the death penalty, um, kill innocent people. That's not the state's responsibility because it's the murderer's responsibility who do it. Whereas what I say is if, in fact, your evidence were good enough and you knew that your decision not to have the death penalty was leading to the deaths of those innocent people, then you do have to take responsibility for that. Hmm. Now, this, of course, runs counter to... I think uh, a real um, cornerstone of, of the American uh, legal philosophy, which is the sovereign rights of the individual. And that leads some people to conclude, as the saying goes, better a hundred guilty men should go free than one innocent man be put in jail. Mm-hmm. Or better a hundred guilty men should live than one innocent man be executed. Does that philosophy hold any value for you, the one that I just stated? Well, let me first say that um, you know, just that statement is something that I can agree with, if you like. Better a hundred guilty men should live than one guilty man should be executed. One innocent man. Sorry, one innocent <laughs> than, than, than one innocent man should be executed. But um, we were talking before of the assumption that when we let these hundred guilty men go free, they're not just going to go free and enjoy the rest of their lives peacefully. They're going to kill other innocent people. So if that's the case, if we assume that letting the guilty go free is going to mean more innocents die, then I do disagree with what you've described as the cornerstone of American uh, philosophy or individual rights. Now, I could argue with you on that on a consequentialist basis that goes something like this, and I think there are probably some death penalty opponents, for instance, who would say exactly this, that when the state is allowed and allowed explicitly to kill the occasional innocent person, in the name of, again, the, uh, the safety, the greater safety of the populace. It corrupts the way we think about life. It corrupts the way we think about uh, murder. It seems to justify a kind of callousness toward life, a kind of, um, uh, a kind of cold and clinical view of life that ultimately will lead to bad consequences because those, those societies that don't take life really seriously end up giving rise to a lot more killing. Well, one of the questions is, what is it to not take life really seriously? Is it to not do something which, and remember we're talking hypothetically here, which we know would reduce the number of innocent people being killed in the society overall? Um, You might say that's the attitude which shows how much you value life. So I'm not sure that it would have the corrupting effect that you're referring to. Yeah, well, this is a very personal take on it, but I've always wondered whether sort of absolutes like pacifism and thou shalt not kill... Though simplistic, though they can be proven to be illogical and not always result in the right action, whether they they create a culture of caring, a culture of uh, compassion that ultimately leads to less brutality and, and mm. uh, less crime. Yeah. I mean, 
I think it's it's kind of an optimistic view, and and I must admit, during the Vietnam War, I was interested in pacifism, and I. I thought that that was the best argument for pacifism, not that it's absolutely wrong to kill, but that by being a pacifist, you will create a culture in which the idea of killing becomes um, unthinkable. That's that's the hope. But I suppose I've become a little more cynical now, and I, I just don't believe that. I, I believe that it's simply going to allow the callous who are prepared to kill to be dominant, and that's why I think you have to regrettably abandon the pacifist stance. Now, I want to get uh, to an issue that you're probably most heavily identified with, which is uh, animal welfare. And I'm not saying animal rights. Uh, that's the wrong term from your point of view, isn't yes, it? Yes, you could say animal liberation, if you like, since that was the title of the first book I wrote on that topic, and I'm happy with that. Um, and sometimes people describe me as, you know, the father of the animal rights movement or something like that. And I don't object, really, because... When people talk about the animal rights movement, they often use that in a loose way to talk about the whole spectrum of groups, some of which are specifically animal rights groups and some of which are activist advocates for animals, anti-cruelty groups, welfare groups, and so on. And in that broad sense, fine, I'm an animal rights advocate. But uh, I don't actually think that the foundation of my views about what we, how we ought to change our behavior in regard to animals is uh, based on rights, because as a utilitarian, I base it on consequences, on not thwarting their preferences for a decent life, on uh, uh, not causing them pain, which obviously they have a, a, a desire to avoid, and, and suffering, and so on. So for me, that's the foundation, rather than some idea of, of rights as distinct from utility. So the ultimate good that has to be considered in, in your moral scheme is the preferences of the individual uh, under consideration. Yes, of all of them. Yes. And, and, and in that case, um, since animals are capable of preferences, at least we, we certainly seem to believe so, uh, they deserve as much consideration as a human being. Well, where there are similar preferences, they deserve as much consideration. I mean, it may be that we have different kinds of preferences. Maybe even in some cases our preferences are more intense or something like that. And, you know, but... But what I'm saying is that simply because they're not human is not in itself a reason for saying that their preferences deserve less weight. Now, you reject the uh, great chain of being, the hierarchy that puts human beings at the very top and uh, lower life forms, so-called, at the bottom. But you do allow some distinction between uh, preferences that are to be taken more seriously and preferences that are to be taken less seriously. Well, yes, certainly, because... um, Beings with greater awareness can have different kinds of preferences which can matter more to them. So that beings like us who can see themselves as existing over time uh, can work for things in the distant future. And we can, uh, you know, it can be terribly important for us that we are able to complete some goal or achievement or objective. We might have worked for it for many years. And that then becomes a central preference or desire around which we organize our lives. Whereas... Uh, some other animals, uh, I don't know, let's say what a fish or something like that maybe, um, presumably don't have these thoughts about um, what will I be doing next week or uh, next year or you know, some future, distant future period. So I think for that reason, even though they can feel pain and even though we should consider their capacities for pain and avoid inflicting pain on them wherever possible, I think that they, the wrongness of killing them is... Uh, much less than it is in the case of killing those humans who look into the future and work for the future and want to fulfill their goals in the future.
and therefore we're frustrating special kinds of preferences there. In a way, though, it sounds like um, one's claim to consideration in this system uh, is a function of almost one's degree of selfishness. I mean, my preferences are, are keener, and they're, they're grander, and, they're, um, and I have more of them if I'm a person who's uh, very self-interested than if I'm a person who's very altruistic and, uh, and selfless. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why you're saying that. Um, I mean, I talked about having goals for the future. Your goal might be to earn a million dollars and build a nice house overlooking the sea here in Santa Cruz, um, or your goal might be to earn a million dollars and to give it to Oxfam America so that they can help an entire village of people in, uh, I don't know, Mozambique, to uh, have safe drinking water and uh, have a school where they can educate their children. Uh, if, if, those, if that's what you want, then your preference for it counts just as much. And, of course, the fact that you'll satisfy the preferences of a whole village of people in Mozambique adds to the importance of that goal in a way that it doesn't towards the importance of the more selfish goal. Well, I guess I was picking up on a, on a notion that I, I detected in your earlier response, which said that maybe a, a lower life form doesn't really care as much or it's not as invested, uh, and therefore its preferences shouldn't rank as highly in, in, this, uh, in this weighing process as a human being, for instance, who has a great deal invested and a great deal of passion and desire uh, about a certain goal. So that, you know, I, I logically extrapolated and thought, well, what about two human beings, one of whom is a grasping, um, self-serving, uh, someone who feels that their every need is very urgent, and another person who's very detached and, we might say, selfless, who says, who's more likely to yield? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there is an interesting problem there. I, 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 I agree. There is a, there is an issue from my view about if someone is, is very detached uh, in some way uh, and don't have strong desires at all for their lives, do they count less than the person who has those intense desires that, that you referred to? Um, well, perhaps, perhaps they do if they, really, if they really are so detached that they just don't care much about what happens to them. Um, perhaps I have to say yes. Um, in a sense, you know, if you have to choose between saving the life of one or the other, you ought to save the life of the one who does care intensely about, you know, staying alive and being able to fulfill their desires and preferences and goals. And the one who's just sort of, you know, grooving along without any kind of future preferences perhaps uh, does get left behind. Well, there's another problem, too, when it comes to estimating the, the uh, intensity of preferences. Some people... Uh, again, uh, who we might call selfish, are going to cry louder than people who may care just as deeply but have decided to put others before them. Yes. Don't those people lose out in your system? The no, I mean, that is a problem of finding out, uh, you know, in, in a way we would be fooled if we thought that the expression, uh, how, much, how loudly they cry out, if you like, is an accurate indication of how much they care. Um, and it is, you're, you know, you're right, it's a problem for, for any kind of utilitarianism. How do you measure preferences or how do you measure how much happiness somebody gets from something um that's just uh, i have to accept that's that's simply a problem of measurement that we can't really be accurate so in a way we can only be confident where we have quite you know gross disparities in in how much someone gets out of something so there are places where even utilitarianism has to throw up its hands and say this is yeah we just can't judge it's just it's just too difficult um you know just as we ought to say you know in in some policy decisions we just don't know what the outcomes are going to be of putting more money here into healthcare in the community as distinct from putting more money into education. Um, it's the same kind of, you know, imponderable calculation. You never quite know whether you've done the right thing. Do you have any of those in your personal life? 
yeah, I, I guess I, I certainly do have uh, you know decisions about what I should be doing. I mean, I uh, give away a certain amount of my income to support various organizations, and I often get into discussions with people uh, as to what I should be doing. For example, I, I do give quite a lot to Oxfam America because I think they're you know a, a great organization that's working to alleviate poverty in the poorest countries and also works as an advocate for people in those countries and global forums like you know on on trade issues subsidies that harm people in developing countries and uh and so on but people in the animal movements on i say well but you know by by supporting people they're probably meat it is they're going to make animals suffer um uh, wouldn't it be better just to to uh, work to make more people vegan, so there are fewer animals suffering. And other people will say, shouldn't you give it to uh, an organization that's just trying to stop population growth? Because isn't that the underlying problem with global poverty? So those are real questions. I mean, I, I don't have any definite way of saying, you know, no, it's better to put it here than to put it there. And I don't know that anybody does. It would be great if somebody could calculate all the consequences and work it out. But but life is difficult that way. We just have to accept that. I think you've been charged with with, with advocating a system that that doesn't allow much room for the heart, for, for love, for feelings like compassion, but rather reduces it all to a sort of cold logic. Um, in your own life, does your heart come into conflict with the utilitarian values you espouse? And, and, and in such cases, maybe we're talking about family members, people you love, even though, you know, under a utilitarian system, you, you'd be better off to deny them something and give it to the community as a whole. Uh, which side of you wins out in those cases? Uh, just before I answer that, let me go back to the first thing you said, because I, I think it's really grossly unfair to think that a uh, utilitarian view like mine doesn't allow for compassion or, or the heart. I mean, I think it's all about compassion in a way. My my uh, campaigns against uh, factory farming, which causes so much suffering to billions of animals, uh, is really based on compassion for the suffering of those animals precisely. And the utilitarian framework is a way of saying, how can we, how can we be most effective in reducing that suffering? That's all it does. So I think that um, you know the heart and the feelings are very much behind uh, most utilitarians, really, who have a strong sense of how terrible it is that people or other beings should suffer unnecessarily. But when you then come to ask about uh, questions about where it's more my personal feelings than my generalized compassion, my, my love for my children or something of that sort, uh, yes, of course, I, I have conflicts, and and in fact, I know that you know I probably have done too much for my children, um, and uh, should have done more for the children of strangers, if you like. Uh, uh, but you know, again, it's it's a little bit like I, I'm part of a uh, a system here where children are brought up by their families, better cared for by their families, and and that's a, a good system. So I think we're justified in showing a certain amount of of preference for our children, but we probably show too much of it because of the kind of beings we are. We're mammals. We grow up with this strong concern for our children. And, you know, however much we think about the long-term consequences, we don't ever get completely uh, above those those feelings, and we're never completely impartial, really. Yeah, so I, I want to ask then, um, if the system that you have uh, helped elaborate occasionally even defeats you, is it your desire that the system really be the one sort of operating manual we all use, or is it better that we have this, these principles in mind, 
But we also have that side of the human being that is less logical, that is more subject to, to, to feelings, the good feelings we talked about a moment ago, compassion and love. Is it good that we are this sort of hybrid animal that is part reason, part feeling? Well, I don't know whether it's, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether it's good that we are because it just is the case that we are and it's not something that we can change. You know? Well, would you wish it away in the name of, of systematic logical thinking? Uh, along I think we would probably, lines? no, I think the cost of doing that would probably be too high. I think we would lose too much if we lost the kind of, uh, the kind of hybrid animal that we are. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it away. But I might still think that, you know, perhaps the balance isn't quite right. It would be better if we were. Uh, less partial to the, our nearest and dearest and more aware of the needs of strangers. I want to talk more about animals uh, along the lines we were talking earlier. Um, your way of looking at it privileges mental states in a way, awareness, desire, uh, a sense of, of oneself and um, the needs that go along with it, plans, a sense of the future. Do we need to assign consideration based on some scientific estimation of mental capacity do we need to know a lot more about animal consciousness and do we then get to say well gee it turns out um, an octopus really doesn't have much of a sense of itself and therefore we can eat them without any guilt well i do think that yes the, the scientific information is certainly relevant uh, as we get it um, and in fact very often it's shown us that animals are more complex and uh, more thinking beings, more beings acting with intentions and, and purposes, uh, stronger bonds, social bonds between uh, you know, uh, mothers and children, just for example, or between friends in a group, than we had thought. And that kind of scientific information is important. And in Europe, for example, it has led to changes in the systems of keeping animals in intensive farms, uh, in a way I talk about in, in the book, uh, The Way We Eat, um, whereas it, it really hasn't here. And I think we are not giving sufficient attention to what the scientists tell us about the needs of animals in that respect. Of course, it could occasionally go the other way. I mean, it's conceivable. I don't think it's true, but it's conceivable that, yes, we could learn something about the octopus that says, well, really, although they're very complex, it works in a quite different way and it bypasses consciousness altogether. And if that really were true, then I guess it would be okay to eat octopuses. Again, maybe I'm getting too carried away with implications, but if we're to um, assess consideration based on mental competence when evaluating the relative claims of human beings and animals, and, and we also do this regarding extreme differences among human beings, like the case of someone who's in a persistent vegetative state versus someone who is is fully conscious and um, and aware should we look at finer gradations should we say uh in a in a in a contest of um of interest between two people well he's a he's a dumber guy and he doesn't seem to have as much awareness of his overall prospects in life and this person meanwhile is a much more expansive individual and therefore deserves more <laughs> you know uh, deserves uh, greater consideration is that something we should do no, I think at this point we do have to come back to uh, questions about uh, the general structure of society and wanting, you know, certain broader principles of wanting to make everybody feel equally a part of society and and so on. So, you know, whereas we could imagine in some circumstances making those more fine-tuned distinctions pe between people would have some immediate short-term benefits. Uh, at that point, I would agree with what you wanted to say earlier about the, you know the whole area that um, that the it's it's better to simply have a general principle that that we regard everyone as equal 
uh, once they pass some uh, limited tests for you know having a degree of self-awareness at all. Now, your latest book, uh, which is called um, The Way We Eat, Why Our Food Choices Matter, gets into the specifics of dietary decisions and consumer decisions around food and the, and the consequences uh, environmentally, on animal welfare, uh, and also on, uh, on economic uh, fairness with regard to workers' pay and workers' treatment in the food chain. Um, this issue of diet quickly gets into a question sometimes in, in human affairs of who's virtuous and who isn't. There's a stereotype out there of the uh, virtuous vegan or vegetarian or even the smug vegan or ve- vegetarian and the guilty meat eater. Do you think uh, questions of, of, of moral superiority have any place in this sort of ethical debate that we're talking about? I'm not really interested in, in who's morally superior for the sake of, you know, some people believing that they're virtuous and others are vicious. Um, but I am interested in the consequences of what people do. And in that respect, uh, the vegan is inflicting less harm both on the planet and the environment and on the animals than the conventional uh, American meat eater. I think there's no question about that. So um, what I'm interested in is to trying to persuade the conventional American meat eater either to join the vegan or, if that's uh, too much, at least to engage in a harm reduction strategy, which would mean, I think, for a first step, avoiding factory farm products, trying to find organically produced or uh, free-ranging grass-fed uh, animal products, uh, and that would be a step in the right direction. So, so that's the emphasis on trying to produce change so that we cause less harm, not in trying to rank people in terms of their virtue or otherwise. You would uh, say, though, that a sort of balance sheet applies to our actions, wouldn't you, that... Um you know, though we may do something in, uh, on one day that's not so good for the rest of humanity or the rest of the world, that uh, we could do something the next day that, that uh, you know, that, that sort of restores some balance. In that case, being a vegan alone isn't enough, I mm-hmm. would imagine, nor is being a meat eater alone, uh, you know, make you fully culpable. What about, a, a you know, a, a meat eater spends her time, uh, almost all of it, uh, on humanitarian causes. Yeah, absolutely. And a selfish yeah, yeah. vegan who drives an SUV and uh, sponsors arms trading, you know. Yes, okay, I haven't actually <laughs> met any vegans like that. Um, uh, but but it's true. I've certainly met mediators who devote a lot of their time to humanitarian causes. Um, sometimes that's because they haven't actually thought about the implications of their meat eating. And actually, people who do, who are concerned about humanitarian causes, are easier, if you like, to make aware. When you make them aware of the implications of their meat eating, it's easier to get them to shift. In in my experience. But, but yeah, I entirely agree. And in, in a way, we're we're saying this in the in the book that you have to take an overall perspective on what people are doing and uh, you shouldn't regard you know one thing that people are doing as wrong as as condemning them and even within the terms of diet I mean we talk in the book uh, about a sort of flexitarian approach to to food so uh, there's there's a guy who I, I quote called uh, Darren Firestone who uh, has what he calls the Paris exception. He's he's a vegan normally, but if he finds himself in Paris with an opportunity to go to a fine gourmet restaurant, he, uh, he'll eat anything on the menu there because it's a sort of, you know, once in five years experience. How about you? Do you make exceptions? You're a vegan. 
Yeah, I do make exceptions, although not particularly that kind because I don't think I would actually enjoy the meal at the restaurant with, with meat in it. But I make exceptions um, when I travel and it's hard to really get anything much to eat that's vegan, but there are vegetarian dishes that contain dairy, say, uh, products. I will eat them. So, um, so I'm not really a strict vegan in that sense. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a flexible vegan, although when I go shopping for myself, um, I'll be a good vegan then. Uh-huh. I'm talking to Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. His latest book is The Way We Eat, Why Our Food Choices Matter, co-written by Jim Mason. Peter, uh, in writing this book, you and your co-author did some on-the-ground research. You went to factory farms. You went to organic farms. You uh, visited families and looked at their diets. You guys even, and I, it's hard to tell which of you did this because you use the term we throughout the book, which may refer to you in one case and, and Jim Mason in another case. But you even did things like um, working in the turkey insemination uh, business? That, that was Jim, I must admit. Um, yes. Uh, uh, Jim did that. He uh, got himself hired for a day as a turkey inseminator. Now, not everybody who has turkey at Thanksgiving realizes that that turkey is the result of artificial insemination unless they bought a sort of heritage breed turkey because a conventional American turkey has such a big breast that it actually can't mate, um, can't get, to get it together in that way. So every uh, you know, normal supermarket turkey uh, is produced because there's some guy who grabbed a male turkey and masturbated it, captured the semen in a little glass tube, and then some other guy whose job it was to attach that semen to a, a kind of a, an air pump, and someone grabs the female turkey, sort of doubles her over in a way so that she's open to be inseminated, and then uh, the semen is blown in. So Jim had a day doing that work, actually, on both sides, the, the males and the females uh, he worked at. And, uh, uh, you know, he said it was, it was the hardest, dirtiest day's work he's ever done. Uh, speed was the essence. You had to keep picking up these heavy turkeys and, and doing these things to them. Uh, it was dusty. The air was filled with feathers. He was getting abused by his fellow workers uh, for not working fast enough. Uh, it was poorly paid. Uh, and, of course, you know, they were very rough on the birds. I, I have to admit, it was hard to picture you being the one who was uh, involved in the turkey insemination. So my guess was that it was Jim Mason. Uh, but you did visit some factory farms. Yes, yes, I have visited factory farms. Yes. And, and as a person who's devoted a large part of your life to, to animal welfare uh, issues, how did that, and, and this, I want to ask this on a personal basis, how did it feel? It's terrible. I have to say it's really terrible because you're helpless there. You know, I mean, um, you can't do anything about it, even if, uh, you know, I, I haven't done this, but I know some people who have. They say they've gone into factory farms and they've taken some chickens uh, out of cages. Sometimes there are chickens that are loose. In fact, sometimes there are chickens that have fallen into the manure pits and are going to starve to death, really, because um, there's no food down there, but somehow the cage is broken and they've fallen out. Uh, and they've rescued them, you know. So you can do that to, you know, you can take five or ten chickens. But there's maybe 40,000 chickens in a shed. There's nothing you can do. You know they're going to go there, go on suffering after you've left. And, and it's terribly frustrating. It's also just physically unpleasant. The air is terribly bad, um, you know, and, and it's noisy. The chickens are noisy. The pigs I've been into, you know, it, it, again, it really stinks. The ammonia is there and you can see the pigs sort of, totally bored, have nothing to do, really frustrated, often lying uncomfortably on bare concrete because it's, you know, they don't want to go to the expense of giving them any straw or other bedding. So it's, it's a very frustrating experience. Mm -hmm. we, have these, uh, we have these expressions like red meat conservative and granola eating liberal, reflecting some 
ideological slant to dietary issues, do these issues, veganism, vegetarianism, conscientious food choices, do they tend to break out ideologically? And if so, why? Well, to some extent they do, although a lot of conservatives are very troubled about factory farming. Um, because, you know, in the real meaning of the term conservatives, that is conserving what was there in the past, factory farming has been a, a radical force. It's completely destroyed a lot of rural communities um, because it reduces the amount of labor required for farming. It makes it impossible for independent small farmers who incorporate a lot of conservative values to continue to make a living. Um, I mean, you can't make a living. You, know, you used to be able to make a living, say, with a flock of four or 5,000 hens laying eggs. Uh, you need about a million hens to make a living now. And so, of course, it has to be a factory farm, and those uh, hens have to be in cages, unless you're selling organic or free-range eggs and getting a higher price for them. As for the you know, granola-eating uh, liberals, well, um, I suppose my experience is that most people who are vegetarian or vegan are liberals, um, but not all of them. I mean, a uh, well-known ex- example, I guess, is, is Matt Scully, who uh, was a speechwriter in the Bush White House who wrote a book called Dominion, um, which is uh, a strong call for, he calls it mercy. He doesn't want animal rights, but he wants mercy towards God's creatures. So again, you know, Christians can very well have a different attitude towards animals from the acceptance of uh, industrial farming and the other abuses that we inflict on animals. Do you see much movement uh, in in uh, what would appear to be traditionally partisan positions? Do you see much of that happening? Um, conservatives who are interested in these issues or, on the other hand, liberals who, who aren't and, and are opposed to, to these positions. Yeah, there is some. And again, you know, Matt Scully's book was an interesting example, and it got picked up by a lot of conservatives in this country. It got a front-page uh, feature in Pat Buchanan's um, magazine, and uh, he got onto a lot of other conservative Christian uh, radio programs and so on. Uh, so I think there is, uh, you know, some sort of change. Uh, even even the Pope, actually, uh, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, made a statement against factory farming. Um, so I, I think this is interesting, and I hope that uh, conservatives and religious leaders will start to take these issues seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, J.M. Kotsia, the uh, Nobel Prize winner in literature from South Africa, gave a, a couple of lectures a few years ago at Princeton University, the Tanner Lectures. They were expecting a lecture on literature. What they got was a story, a, a, a fiction, about a woman named Elizabeth Costello, who is an ri- elderly writer and who is a vegetarian and who is horrified by our treatment of animals and sees that... Um, we're slaughtering them by the millions and, and likens it to the Holocaust, for which she's sharply criticized by some of the book's other characters. Um, is Elizabeth Costello's feeling that this is a, almost uh, almost impossible to live with horror, is that something you share? Not exactly. I can, I can well understand that feeling. But I don't actually feel it deeply in the way that she does. I sometimes have moments when I do think like this, uh, as, you know, when I visit a factory farm and, and think, you know, this is going on all the time all around the country and I can't do anything about it. I do have that. But I suppose I, I don't have quite that sense. Perhaps, I'm not sure why, but perhaps because I, I grew up eating meat, uh, accepting it. Um, there are members of my extended family who still eat it, with whom, you know, I'm still on friendly terms. I still regard them as in... As, as good people in, in, in most respects, although not quite in this one. Um, and so I suppose I, I think that uh, 
it's it's a terrible thing that we're doing, but that it is part of the world that I've always lived in, and uh, it doesn't shock me in the way that it would if I had never lived in it and I'd then gone to some other country in which uh, all that was going on. I'm sure I would have been more shocked. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter Singer, I want to thank you for spending this time with us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's really been great talking to you, and you've asked a lot of challenging questions. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, recorded in 2006. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back to ask more challenging questions next week. Please join us.